The challenge for me was some people challenged me. You know, I was living on welfare, and Uncle Sam was really a cruel taskmaster. So the rules were don't work, don't save, don't get married. We'll kind of keep you enslaved to this poverty plantation. So that's kind of how I lived. But I wanted a little bit more money than they were giving me. So I went to try to get a job in a place that I thought would pay me under the table. You know, usually when you're in harder pockets of our distressed communities, people pass money, cash. And these folks said they didn't pass money, cash. They were legitimate businessmen. Our guest is a best-selling author of four books. Two to note include Uncle Sam's Plantation, which details how big government enslaves America's poor and what we can do about it, as well as Blind Conceit, which offers a way for America to move forward on the issues of racial polarization, politics, and policy. Through her weekly national television appearances and internationally distributed column, Star Parker has appeared on all major television stations and newspapers. Now Star can add to her resume Bot Radio Network's premier station in Memphis, Tennessee. Stark Parker, welcome to Bot Radio. <laughs> I'm glad to add that to my resume. It's good to see you again. Last time we saw each other was in Orlando. It was yeah. probably a little bit warmer than it is here in Memphis right yes, now. Yes, At the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, right. which again, just in a couple of weeks. That's right. But back in Tennessee. So I'm wondering what happened. <laughs> Why did we move from Orlando? Maybe the attendance was low. Everybody was out at the swimming pools. Maybe so. <laughs> so they at, said, at wait Disney a minute. World, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be in these <laughs> sessions. Come on back. We're going to, but, but it won't be here memphis it will be up in nashville but i look forward to um nrb and i do every year and i certainly appreciate dick and shirley bott that's one of the main reasons that i love going to nrb and cmp oh and i forgot also um rich i like rich yeah (laughs) Yeah, rich is there too yeah well one of the reasons you've been in town was to speak recently at world overcomers outreach ministries with bishop alton williams a a good friend of ours here at bot radio network i think you spoke both of the morning services Oh, it was incredible to be able to share my story of God's redemption through criminal activity and drug activity and sexual activity and welfare activity and then see God's hand move through my life to get an experience with him to be able to now lead a policy institute in Washington, D.C., where we talk about and we explore alternatives to fighting poverty than the welfare state to be able to share that to an all black audience and then get there with me, resonate with me, cheer with me. But I think the most incredible part was how much information they didn't know about what has been happening around them and to their communities was eye-opening enough to say, we haven't done our work. We haven't done enough to push down messaging in our hardest-hit communities uh, about the damage of not only the welfare state, but about liberal policy and politics. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just really appreciated that Pastor Williams and his lovely wife would allow me to come in and just share myself so openly before his congregation in both of the services. It's not often a shepherd turns a sheep over to someone that he's not even really heard present their message. He said he's been following me, he's listened to things, but this is the first time we actually get to get to know each other and we're very much of like mind. Cure is the think tank you're referring to, the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, which you founded and are, of course, the president director of this organization. Mm-hmm. You've got a great team that stands with you, mm-hmm. uh, not just to sit around and think about this as a think tank, but actually put things into motion and action <laughs> and get involved. <laughs> well, so. Derek, who actually <laughs> runs the organization, Reverend Derek McCoy, calls it a think and do tank. There he you says, go. <laughs> we, we have policy, advocacy, and action. And I'm yeah. like, that is true. Huh? I guess I'm just the only one that likes to sit around thinking about this. 
this stuff. And <laughs> well, I pulled this off your website because the three pillars you just mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. the policy, the media, and the clergy center, really mm-hmm. what is what the foundationally you guys are built upon. Absolutely. What we believe is that we, if we change the laws, we will change lives. We didn't get here yesterday. The law changed. And in fact, one of the beautiful expressions of Memphis is the Civil Rights Museum that I was able to partake and get in and just look at what happened uh, from at Dr. King's moment here. Uh, we're in the 50th year now uh, since he was assassinated here in Memphis. And to be able to look at that critical point where Dr. King in 63 said, I have a dream. And then he told the people, go back into your communities and build, because he had a dream, and he knew that that dream would be fulfilled. A year later, the Civil Rights Act was signed into law. A year later, the Voting Rights Act was signed into law. But that's when also signed into law was a an expansion of the welfare state, a war on poverty. And President Johnson, although he helped Dr. King get to that moment to where we had the Civil Rights Act signed into law and the Voting Rights Act signed into law, he had another agenda, and his agenda was a political agenda, and And blacks began to turn a movement of desegregation into a movement of forced integration. And that's challenging for us. So we need to change the law. We've got to get back to the point where we don't think that government is the catch-all, solve-all. And that's what the Policy Institute is about in my organization. Change the law so we can change lives. But we do have a media center. We have to get the truth out. And then we also have a clergy center who we work with on a very regular basis to educate them, to equip them so that we can activate them in their own community so that they now can be better informed to go and serve the least of these. We're after the lost sheep, uh, and that's what Cure basically is about. Star, I was doing an interview last week to help promote an event, Remembrance of the 1968 Sanitation Worker Strike, which brought Dr. King here to Memphis Mm -hmm. in the first place. As a 56-year-old white male, I have to confess, I had never read I Have a Dream speech until doing my prep work for that. Mm. And I literally sat in this office where we are right now and wept when I read Dr. King's speech. Mm -hmm. I think if more white evangelical Protestants would do that as well, then they would stop, first of all, saying, why don't y'all just get it together? And or they would stop trying to work on these things from the peripheral and or call in African-Americans when now they're under attack because of religious liberties and or, uh, you know, they want to change abortion law and or the homosexual activists are after them. We have some real core problems in this country. We always have. So I appreciate that you would take the time to get where we are. And we, we you know, what's happened to African-American communities, we, ha- we did move from slavery to Jim Crow, from a Jim Crow to a welfare state. This is not a good idea. We were interrupted in our journey to freedom and the freedom lovers in this country need to appreciate appreciate this, but they cannot do it with half information. One of my really good friends out of the Northeast was like, talk about these things in my private life as well. She finally just stomped her hands on the table and said, I wish you'd stop talking about Jim Crow. I don't even know who he is. And I'm like, okay. She said, and so I told her just a little bit and she said, well, how was I supposed to know? I was born in Connecticut. Well, <laughs> it doesn't take much now. We do have Google. So yeah. I appreciate that you would read this and that you would weep because it is a moment of weeping. It's a moment in our history that we cannot ignore, that we have had challenges, that our founders were were on in, you know, I don't I don't disagree that God ordained them to found this country, but they were flawed men. This is not the Constitution is not the catch all. The Declaration of Independence actually caught much more than the Constitution. And we need to appreciate that more deeply. But we can't if we don't know both sides of what happened to our country. 
Where were you prior to coming to faith in Christ? Oh, I was in L.A. I was in Los Angeles, living the fast lane of Los Angeles. My normal day was thumbing a ride to Venice Beach, getting high all day there, coming back to mm, partying all night. Just no life at all. Just pretty recklessly, everyday kind of living into nothingness. The turning point. How did you hear about Christ? What was the oh, what was the challenge for you? The challenge for me was some people challenged me. You know, I was living on welfare, and Uncle Sam is really a cruel taskmaster. So the rules were: don't work, don't save, don't get married. We'll kind of keep you enslaved to this poverty plantation. So that's kind of how I live. But I wanted a little bit more money than they were giving me, so I went to try to get a job in a place that I thought would pay me under the table. You know, usually when you're in harder pockets of our distressed communities, people pass money cash, and these folks said they didn't pass money cash they were legitimate businessmen and so they wouldn't let me work there they told me my lifestyle was unacceptable and when they said that i said to who and they said to god and i hadn't heard of god but it sounded like i should be concerned and they kept calling me wanting me to go to church with them and so one day i did and that's when i heard the gospel I heard God wasn't mad at me. I didn't even think about God prior to that. I didn't think he thought about me. But in finding out how deeply he thought about me and how much he loved me, I thought that that was kind of cool. So that's when I transitioned my life into Christianity, and I just started living a Christian life and doing everything I could to live a Christian life by finding out what that means. So that means I started going to Bible study and reading the Bible. And you were still on welfare at this time? I was. Okay. Mm -hmm. And talk about the process of moving away from welfare. Well, that was pretty easy for me. It's not easy for a lot of people, but I am very impatient person and I'm a very impulsive person. So when the preacher said, what are you doing living on welfare? The government is not your source. God is. I just wrote my caseworker and told her, take my name off. I don't suggest that to many of the welfare moms today. In fact, I work very closely with welfare moms. When I go into communities, I do everything I can to also go into the housing project and speak to them. And I actually go through some goal setting with them because you need to really set some goals. Even at the church yesterday, I was talking to many of the folks that are still struggling in that area of their life. And you know, well, I just want to get off. I know you want to get off. Many Americans think that the folks on welfare are having a party. No, they hate it. And they're just trying to figure out a way to get out. We have a, pass laws in our land that keep them trapped in ghettos, that keep them trapped in failing schools, that keep them from going to work. So those laws have to be changed. So in the meantime, I let them know, no, just set some goals for yourself. It'll be all right. And then I gave her some areas to set some goals in to uh, start moving toward getting off welfare. We had a local radio celebrity from one of the So Classics radio station here, Mother Wit, she was called, did the morning drive. And Mother Wit, I've had her on the station to share her story before, was homeless in Atlanta, living in a shelter. But she had this concept of trying to get out of her dilemma. So she started designing, using her art to design pieces like coffee cups and T-shirts, selling them on the streets so she could collect enough money That's awesome. to get out of her situation. Right. You know? right. But for some, it doesn't come that easy. Well, it doesn't come that easy. Plus, she was breaking the law. We have to change the law. You can't. If you could just go out and sell a widget, that would be great. The Institute for Justice had to actually take the cosmetology union to court just for women to braid hair. I mean, black women braid hair. It's good money for them. But if you're on welfare and you're braiding hair, it's illegal. So they had to get the law changed so that they didn't need that $800 cosmetology union's license to be able to braid hair. So things stand away. But it's not that easy. Um, you know, And everybody's not called to business. We have to remove governmental barriers to... To allow for people to live free. What's interesting in the story you just told me about this young woman is there's a new study out that actually it's not even a study. It's just more research on a survey type of research. Coke Industries and the Coke Brothers 
funded it with the Thurgood Marshall Fund. Yes, it's the first time unique. And then they partnered with Gallup to get the data. And what's really intriguing about this, it just came out, is to see what the people themselves are thinking. The conservative right have never said, wonder what they're thinking for us to try to help fix what's broken down in their communities. Uh, And so now we have information to show that a whole lot of mobility is necessary because when they asked in these what we call distressed zip codes, but they called fragile communities, when they asked the people that live there, they want to get out of there. So the best thing we can do through HUD policy is voucherize it. Let them go live anywhere. Why are we trapping people in ghettos and forcing communities to build affordable housing? Why don't we just let people go live free if we're going to really help them? That woman that you just described, she was able to move. And yeah. not everybody has the ability to do that uh, because they don't have the opportunity to do that. And some of that opportunity is hindered because of law itself. Star, recently you testified before the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution and Civil Justice regarding H.R. 490, also known as the Heartbeat Bill. Now, I believe you had a little bit of an eventful time there with an encounter with Congressman Steve Cohen, Democrat representing District 9 in our area. Tell me about that. Well, the heartbeat. It made big news. It did make big news because your congressman from Memphis put his finger in my face and told me I better come to his office and apologize for what I was saying in that hearing. That part didn't make the news as much as what happened on from the hearing floor because he was uh, he's a member of that subcommittee and after i testified that number one all the heartbeat bill is saying is if the heartbeat is detected the baby is protected we have a 14th amendment that should assure that if the heartbeat is detected the baby is protected and it's hard to get any democrat to say you know maybe we ought to recognize humanity in the womb so he was already offended that they were even having this discussion that's not my fault i was just a witness to the fact that Dred Scott decision, which said that Dred had no constitutional rights to appeal for his freedom as a slave because he was not human. You read that decision and you put it up against the Roe v. Wade decision, which says that that baby has no rights because it's not even human. And they read almost verbatim. He did not like me saying that. He did not like me equating slavery and abortion. He did not like me pointing out that Margaret Sanger and her Planned Parenthood organization are deliberately targeting black women to the point that now we have eight million dead as a result of Roe v. Wade. And so what he did to respond to shut me down was he said that I'm either ignorant and or I just didn't understand normal protocol. He came unhinged. And that's what went viral to see this white legislator who represents a district that has the highest infant mortality rate in the country and the highest child poverty rate in the country lash out at me when I'm the one who knows these not only so well because of my research and running a policy institute, but I live that lie that he was trying to promote that day in that hearing. Well, according to the U.S. Census Bureau in Cohen's ninth district here in Tennessee, 8.7% of households headed by a married couple with children under five or poor However, 59.5% of households headed by a single woman with children under five are poor. Right. I mean, how do we change this breakdown of the family? You change your congressman. You get someone that really cares about the people and that they see this. And so they get in there into that little zip code and they say, what can we do to fix it? How do we first stop the hemorrhaging by getting vouchers so those kids can go to schools that where they teach a moral framework? 
That's what you do. You fight for vouchers. You let money follow children to the schools the parents want. Because poor parents, those trapped single moms, they would love for the minister to take her child and help her develop moral character within that child. So that's the first thing that you do. Then he should go up to Washington and fight for vouchers in housing. Let them move around. Get out of these communities that have no work in them. Then what he should do is help change welfare policy that doesn't reward behavior to have children outside of marriage. If you're living in a Section 8 home and you are have three children by the same man, if that man marries you, you lose your home. Tell me what kind of sense this makes. So that's what you should do. Replace this congressman because he is not bidding on behalf of these people. This is really tragic what has happened. And what's even worse is those that are now struggling in these single-headed households that are in our most distressed and broken zip codes, that are in broken down schools. The children are coming out with attitudes. So it's getting worse, not better. We now have crime rates that are high in these zip codes. We now have more out-of-wedlock birth rates in these zip codes. That's my suggestion. Fire Congressman Cohen and get somebody that cares about this, that really that weeps over this. You wept when you saw that when you read what Dr. King's speech was about. It wasn't about building a welfare state. It was about letting people be free. And your congressman doesn't want them free. And that's why he went after me. Because I was talking about freedom, and he didn't like that at all. And he went after me, and he thought he could shut me down with words like ignorant. So disrespectful. On behalf of our congressman, I want to apologize. Well, it's not my right to do that, obviously, but yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you had- no, he's still waiting for me to come apologize. He said, you better come to my office and apologize. I said, I'm not going to your office. I'm going to your community. <laughs> I didn't tell him that, but I sure did. Next thing I know, Providential Hand of Lord had Pastor Alton Williams from World Overcomers call us up and say, I think you should come to our church. And it just happened to be during Black History Month, and it just happened to be on the very day the very day that the sanitation workers decided that they were going out on strike. I don't think this is coincidental. I think that the scripture is very, very true that even the events that seem accidental are ordered of the Lord. Bishop Vincent Matthews is a local pastor with the Church of God in Christ here in our city. And he said that African-American population is currently at 0% growth rate, largely due to abortion. Do you see a change star in the culture of how African-Americans are engaging the issue due to statistics like this? I absolutely do. Just the fact that Bishop Matthews is out there now and Church of God in Christ has finally recognized that we need to speak out about life and abortion in our community is huge in road. I've been in this struggle for pro-life or what I call anti-abortion for about 30 years. I am so glad to see them show up. When I saw the response of the members in the church and Pastor Williams Church, they're hungry for this information. They didn't know what had broken down. They'd never heard of even Kermit Gosnell. That's why they need to replace their leaders, because, first of all, Congressman Cohen should have come and told them about Kermit Gosnell. This is our responsibility to get information to people in our district so that they can understand truth. So, yes, I think that we've turned a corner and I think that the efforts in particular in our office with Reverend Derek McCoy, who runs Cure, and his right hand, Reverend Tim Latif, who runs our clergy program to where we're getting this information out. When Timothy, yes, uh, the other day at the church, he said that when I mentioned that we have blackcommunitynews.com, that if they want a new source of news, go to blackcommunitynews.com. He said people were doing it right there from their seats in the <laughs> congregation. They came and told him later, and the rest of them came to get new information. It's not that people don't want the change. They don't know what to do. Let me write that down again. It's blackcommunitynews.com. That's where we give alternative information to the normal BET 
Oprah setting, if you will. It's online, but it's growing, and it will soon be Cure America News Network so that we can have a viable competition to BET and Oprah. When you have for the last 50 years heard only one side of the story, you can get a little bit lost, and that's what's happened to black America. But there's new people in town. They're called the Center for Urban Renewal and Education, urbancure.org, that I have founded, and others are rallying, including Pastor Williams now, that has given an alternative voice for the black community. And so we'll see who's still standing in, I don't think, but five years. I don't think abortion's going to last another five years. By expert estimation, over $15 trillion have been spent since 1965 in the war on poverty. Why are we perpetuating the poverty issue instead of alleviating it? Is it a money issue or is it a moral issue? It is both. And the money issue is that we have redistributed, and we still do, about $900 billion, a quarter of the budget in these anti-poverty programs, and none of them are working because uh, it's not their role. The role of charity is the church. But the moral part of it is that as a result of us thinking that we were going to have a war on poverty with rules that said marriage is not an option, if you want to qualify, it has totally collapsed black marriage. Only 30% of black adults are now married as a result of this social engineering of the left. So we have a lot of correction to be made there as well. But our new president under this new administration, he wants to fix what's broken down. So we are working diligently to help him get this done. And there's a lot of energy in Washington, not just at Department of Education with Betsy DeVos, but at HUD with Dr. Carson, at Labor, at every place, HHS, every place in Washington now that has this anti-poverty money is being re-examined so that we can dismantle the welfare state so that black communities can fix themselves. We can fix our families. To be paid to not marry is insidious. But that was the mind of President Johnson. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King right here in our city. How do you see the church helping carry Dr. King's dream that didn't die when he died into the next 50 years and beyond? What can the church do to mobilize? And I say the church, all of the church together. Well, I think that well, let's just call them the evangelical white suburban or whatever you guys want to call them out there. Those of the disconnected from the hard pockets of what has broken down. Maybe they should adopt a church and a school that's in the community, local community. Charity is local. We're going to try to do everything we can to get it out of Washington. But it is going to then take the states and the local communities, start thinking of ideas on how to move people away from government dependency and into self-sufficiency. So one way that we know that people can be better equipped is if they get education. And in fact, one of the studies out of one of the research centers of a university said that if African-American men and Latino men just finished high school, there would be a new contribution of about $500 billion into the economy. So what we have to do is get young men in these distressed communities through high school. Well, how do we do that? Well, we make sure that schools that are in their community, those that are private schools, the church schools, have the ability to do that. So the people that have all of the resources outside the community should make sure that these black churches are not shutting their schools down because they don't have resources. They don't have resources because the government has monopolized education. They're serving in communities of poor people, so they don't have money to come and bring their kid to private school. So maybe some scholarships might help. I don't know. They say they keep having these meetings about reconciliation and how do we solve these problems. You know what to do. Get up and just do it. You know, if you're going to open a new plant, why not open it in a distressed zip code? Why not? Yeah. What is stopping us from saying, well, you know what? Why don't I pay somebody a decent wage? Why do I have to wait for government to come tell me what I know in my heart that I should be doing? We seem to be able to do it in other communities. Everywhere else can seem to grow. Unless, of course, we think that it's really something wrong with the people in those zip codes. And I just don't buy that because God said he's given all of us a future and a hope. Yes. Foundationally, that's what your work at Cure is built on the gospel. 
share how you see the gospel transforming lives spiritually so that they also impact the environment of cities, social justice, and the well-being of its citizens. Oh, my goodness. When I just heard the gospel, we know what happens. That's why when Jesus was confronted with poverty, he didn't tell his disciples to go tell the Romans to set up a welfare state. He said, you feed them, bring them to me. And he told us what to do, preach the gospel to them. So we know that that works. And that's what has worked throughout history of God stepping into mankind. And as a result of that, lives change with many, many witnesses. So the next question becomes, well, then how do we get more lives to change? And one way you do that is you get government out of charity. You dismantle this welfare state that grew up out of the 60s and you start leading people toward freedom so that we have the freedom and flexibility to preach the gospel to the poor. Give me some examples of this happening where you're seeing through your organization, you're seeing lives change. Oh, my goodness. When you talk about Christendom, it's just really easy to give a lot of examples to where people are like, I want to be just like you. Can you mentor me? But also even through our policy summit, we bring about 10 percent of our pastors to Washington every year to have a policy summit, three days of just information. They know the gospel. They know the Bible by heart, but they haven't connected it to the economic well-being of their community. And when you're looking at a community that moved to government hiring because the other communities were not or the other job providers were not, it's disproportionate now. Now, blacks work for government. So we have to transition out of that relationship. And so the pastors will come to the conference, they hear information, and their eyes are open. And one particular pastor reported back that he was weeping going back home just because he just found out stuff he hadn't known before. Another one saw in the office, in our clergy office, a sign that says, the answer to poverty is freedom and personal responsibility, not a welfare state. I mean, it was a quote from Reagan. <laughs> he didn't know that. He took a picture of it and said, now that will preach. And another pastor said, yeah, it will. And it's going to be preaching this Sunday. So they know what to do once they have information. So what we've done through Cures, we've not only created BlackCommunityNews.com, but weekly they get my nationally syndicated column. We're getting ready to add a TV show to that. I'm going to do my own show, Cure America with Star Parker, so they can get more information. Monthly they get a book. We give them book, everything from eye pencil to the law. They're reading now, in addition to Bastia, we've gotten reading um, Dr. Soul and probably get them to Tocqueville one day. I don't know yet. <laughs> we just have a book club for them. And then quarterly, they have a newsletter. And then annually, they come to Washington. And when they get a sense of what has happened, we've had everyone from Heritage Foundation to Alliance Defending Freedom to AEI to you name the organizations that have all of this information. We actually now have a marketing department for that information. <laughs> when I first showed up in Washington, Washington 20 years ago or so to work on federal welfare reform, I was like, gosh, the conservative right is just all R&D. They don't have a marketing department. Everything that they're talking about, the people that need to know what they're saying aren't getting that information. So I established one. And so if people will help me, then we can do it even more. This year, we're going to do a critical discussions tour where we're going into the hard hit communities in states that perhaps need a little bit of attention because the Senate is important uh, and it is an election year. We're going to go into those communities and have discussions about economic empowerment, have discussions about criminal justice and have discussions about education and have discussions about just basic morality, abortion and, and, and homosexuality and the damage to family life and what has happened so that we can help fix it. We've got to fix it. Despite much of the gloom and disparity that you see across the nation, what are some rays of hope that motivate you to dream and be encouraged I'm excited because I know that Christianity fills the space. It moves into voids. When you have people of Christian goodwill, 
a passion comes with that and they focus their time and attention on fixing something that God just moves in. I just really appreciate that the Lord, you know, he's still in the fixing lives business. And so every time, you know, you preach the gospel, you share some information, people get healed. We had an amazing time here in Memphis because the light of the Lord came with us. When I, my team came in, we brought the light of the Lord with us because that's what we do. We want the light of the Lord. Reverend Timothy, my goodness, who runs our clergy pro, he prays over every we got to the hotel and the lady's just like he's not dressed like a clergy he's not gally and i'm a caller and yet she just knew that light and so she was telling him that her mom was ill and he just said no we'll pray right now went in the back and prayed right then what we are leaving memphis with is a new encouragement that some are saying we've heard people say when king died we died when king died memphis died so our team is saying well, then bones need to live again. Ezekiel said, we're going to breathe life into Memphis. Yes. And so before we leave, we are breathing life into Memphis. And that's why we're so excited to be here with you and all the other places that we've been able to go to since our little three days here in Memphis. I just love the synergy when I'm around you. You motivate and encourage. You bring to light things. And I appreciate you sharing your heart so much You're with welcome. us today. How can folks follow you, keep updated with the issues that Cure tackles on a daily basis? UrbanCure.org. U-R-B-A-N-C-U-R-E, urbancure.org. And from there, they'll find me. They'll find my Facebook. They'll find the Twitters. They'll find the Derricks. They'll find the Tims. They'll find the, everything that we're doing. They will find from there, blackcommunitynews.com. It'll attach them to us. And we hope you, you will. I'm talking now to the folks out there. Help us so that we can help you and we can help those that are in our little distressed communities, the least of these. We want to go help that lost sheep. And we got to go back to the civil rights time to find where we got off course so that we can now go get that sheep because that's where we last saw him was when we as a nation had a civil rights act passed we should have then said okay let's do what dr king said let's go back into our communities and build star parker my dear sister god bless you thank you for what you're doing for christ's kingdom thanks for being our guest today we appreciate you stopping by you're welcome thank you friends that's all the time we have on this edition of mid-south viewpoint thanks for listening to the program i'm byron tyler hope you have a great afternoon we'll talk to you next time bye-bye